Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast episode. I'm really excited about today's guest, all about finances, financial planning, financial freedom and literacy. We're also going to hear a little bit about the term financial abuse, which is an interesting concept. And uh, our guest is Amanda Kassar from Australia, and I'm happy to welcome her to the show. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me, Christopher. Yeah. Um we connected through Podmatch and set the stage, you know, your experience and background and what you do with clients. Sure. So I am a financial advisor based on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia, just south of Brisbane. So it's subtropical and, and hot and humid most of the time. So beautiful weather. Most people um, love to holiday here on the, on the coast. So um, my business, it's a fairly traditional financial planning practice that I, I sort of joined a financial advisor out of high school and ended up taking over the business. So I've been doing it for a really long time. And I also have a small subsidiary business that helps families transition their loved ones into long-term aged care. So I've been doing it a while. Um, my children both work with me. So it's it's a family business. Uh, I've written a book. I run a podcast. And love to travel extensively. So I get over to the States um, at least annually for a conference there and enjoy spending my time stateside. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, is it Tony Robbins conference or I'm just, is this? Uh, no, it's the Million Dollar Roundtable, which is a global <laughs> financial services conference. So <laughs> not Tony Robbins. <laughs> Having said that, I do also do coaching um, between the States and London with Strategic Coach based out of Toronto. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. This is quite interesting. Kind of um, first thing is um, one thing is talking about is um, uh, ethical investing and that's becoming increasing popular. So what is that and what does it entail and kind of provide advice for someone interested in aligning their investments with their personal values? Yeah. So it's certainly gaining popularity, um, ethical investing, and usually it sort of comes under the social or governance. And we all have really different ideas about what that means to us. So it's good to find someone who can, I suppose, do a bit of a deeper dive into what's important to you. For some people, it's as simple as, you know, I I don't want to do any harm. And for others, it's like, I will not put my money in anything that has, you know, slavery of any kind or trafficking of any kind. It used to be sort of, you know, keep guns and cigarettes out of my portfolio. It was, it was quite, <laughs> quite simple. And then, of course, we've had all these terms come up now like greenwashing where these funds are pretending they've got these really ethical investments and you do a deep dive and, and they're really not. 
that ethical. So it's a tricky space. Um, some people love just social impact. They'd like to invest in hospitals that are doing research and, and making great strides in, in what they're doing. So because it's such a, a wide range of, um, you know, options, it, it's good to really be understanding of, of what's important to us. And, and I think sometimes until we've got that questionnaire sitting in front of us, you know, and it may be everything's important to us. We're super greeny to the core, <laughs> total tree hugging, composting hippie, um, <laughs> which I completely sympathise with. Or, or it might just be, look, I really just don't want to be part of that. Other people just don't care. They want their money to grow, and it doesn't really matter to them where it ends up. So it's it's a very personal choice and one worth doing a a bit of due diligence on. Yeah, and are you seeing more of the Gen Z millennial cohort? doing ethical investing? Because like, I know like my parents, gener boomer generation, uh, that was never, and then kind of like now, now actually uh, millennials and Gen Z, some Gen Xers, they they put their money, you know, they'll they'll vote with their feet and their money and, you know, they won't, they, they will simply will not uh, support things that do not align with their values. Yeah, look, it's, it's actually all generations and I'm even finding depending on the advisor, even boomers are getting really interested because they want the kudos with their grandchildren that they are making a difference with their portfolios. So I find when the advisors are very pro ESG style of investments that the consumers become more aware of it and make those decisions, whereas I've had other advisors say, look, none of my clients ever talk about it, so I don't really worry about it. But probably because they're not initiating the conversations then, you know, the client isn't thinking about it. So it's a two-way street. Yeah. Um, next question is, um, yeah, I'm, you have this uh, financial abuse and um, it's, it's actually quite interesting because I've, um, you know, I've heard the term and um, and it's good that individuals such as yourself are raising awareness about it. What is it? Uh, how do you identify it? And what are effective strategies for helping victims um, overcome this and breaking free? Yeah, I, a few years ago, I wrote a book called Financial Secrets Revealed, and I was interviewing different people about their money stories. And one lady spoke to me about how her husband had used this form of abuse against her. When she went into the relationship, she was quite well off, had a home and investments. And when she left, she had nothing and not even her health. And it just sort of sparked this interest in me of like, how often does this actually happen? And it turns out that obviously money is the easiest way to control someone. So we've got this great big Me Too movement about, you know, um, sexual abuse and domestic violence and people are becoming more and more okay to talk about it. But it's the coercive control and the micromanagement of a person's emotions and finances that is really what sort of, you know, underpins a lot of these um, abusive situations. You know, one of the first questions was, if it was that bad, why don't you leave? And and often that that's a very layered question. Um, it's it's not as simple as walking away when someone's fearing for their life or being able to put food on the table for their children. So coercive control is now becoming a crime and linked with domestic violence in many jurisdictions. Mm. Um, mm. And obviously cutting off financial support to family is is a massive concern it can be as simple in some cases as you know micromanaging the you know you must show me every receipt which isn't as popular now because we've got internet banking and you know they can manage every single thing from watching an app to 
some partners even control the sanitary spending. You know, they won't let their partners buy um, period products or sanitary products and they must stay home during that time frame. So it can be a really, really insidious form of control. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the big red flags, you know, in, if it's an elder person that's being controlled, it could be, you know, your paperwork goes missing, it can be $20 goes missing off your nightstand, or you might not be able to find where that term deposit or the the credit accounts you had went, um, to being forcibly controlled to change your will, um, fraudulently commit insurance claims. It's it's a big and wide-ranging area. Um, You know, being made to sign papers that you're the director of a company that you know nothing about. So, you know, there's there's a lot to it um, and each situation can be different, um, but the overwhelming thing is that you don't have access to your own money to be able to control your situation. Mm. And you mentioned elderly, I assume uh, women and children and just people just kind of in a, a, in a coercive or manipulative situation or at risk. Is that fair assessment? Yeah, so elder abuse is usually a subsection of financial abuse. Often it's women who are financially abused with the children just because of our traditional roles of staying at home and minding the children, being the caregivers, not going to work so much and having the breadwinner control um, how much is taken. That's not always the case. Um, Also, there's some minorities where a patriarchal society is very, very normal. And, you know, it it has been for many years that the man would bring home the bacon and that the woman takes care of the house. So that is a very traditional role where abuse can can occur, but also minorities, um, same-sex couples, you know, it's across every part of our society. Mm. And how can people find help if if they're... um in such a situation is there organizations or groups or i mean authorities what 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 are their options yeah absolutely depending on your jurisdiction in australia now there's actually dedicated elder abuse stations in police stations mm-hmm. um most banks if you are in a bank will be able to direct you to local areas that can help some even now have what they call secret accounts that a person who is the victim of abuse can open and put money into where they never send statements and you only can access that account by going into a branch so that nobody ever knows about it. One of the best things to do is be able to confide in someone within your family or a professional who that you know won't betray you to the controlling partner, which is often quite difficult when they've been isolated for so long from their family and trusted friends. So that that can in turn be really difficult. Uh, women's shelters that take in victims of domestic violence often have people who can assist. Financial um, advisors and counsellors even more so have access to really great resources to help you get back on your feet, understand your rights, learn more about money and be able to take back control. Mm, yeah. It's not on me. It's not only for women and it's also people that are, um, you know, that are relying on a job and, you know, you have to become financial literate. So you you so you become work optional as opposed to, you know, fearing for your job and your boss and layoffs and the economy, all, all this. Next question is, uh, you know, moving on is you have a, you, you're working with family in a business can be rewarding and challenging. What key lessons have you learned from operating a family business? How do you balance professional, personal relationships in this unique setting? 
Oh, I'm probably the last person to say yeah. I've, I've nailed that. <laughs> so both my children work with me. My son is um, 28, my daughter's 26, and <laughs> it has been fraught, to say the least. They, um, I think, disliked each other on site. Uh, they still bicker and carry on, and I still feel like most of the time I'm being mum, not the boss. So <laughs> I actually at one stage brought in um, a professional in family business to assist and make sure our roles were really defined in the business. We're very fortunate that um, our kids actually like to hang out with us, not only at work, but afterwards on weekends as well. So, look, yeah. is there a, a silver bullet? Uh, if there is, please tell me because I wish I'd found it. Um, I just think it it adds that layer of complexity, but there's also that layer of love. And hopefully within family, you know you've got each other's backs. And even when things go bad, you know, there's that love underlying everything that, you know, hopefully is going to make it all all okay in the end. Um, I know that's not every family, so I'm speaking for myself here. But, yeah, it's it's certainly not an easy thing to navigate at the best of times because of the extra um, layers and nuances that that become part of, of family business. And it's also sometimes difficult for other people to be a part of that because they – you know, whether it's there or not, there is a perceived favoritism that you're, you know, you're going to treat family members better than other people, or you're not seen to discipline or correct them, you know, in the same sort of way you might a colleague. So it it's fraught on on a lot of different different layers. So yeah, that's why for me, finding someone who was an expert in in family business, bringing them in to help us set some rules and guidelines for in the office versus at home. I actually worked with my parents as well, and it was very, very easy for me that they were John and Christine in the office and they were mum and dad at home. My kids can't get their head around that, and I'm mum all the time. So everybody knows I'm mum. And look, a lot of people actually want to deal with a family business. So in some ways, it it works for us as well. So, <laughs> yeah. But look, if there's, if there's a magic answer, someone can tell me. <laughs> Yeah, it's quite interesting because um, they always say, um, you know, family and business don't mix. And um, but then I've seen, you know, examples where that uh, mantra is true, but then also examples where you know, there's successful family business and it gets handed down and um, which is very interesting. Kind of talk about, you know, your business and your company and, uh, you know, how it can help clients. Sure. So most of our clients are, are pre-retirees. They're still building up wealth to to put aside for their retirement. And retirement these days is very different to, you know, at 65, you get your gold watch and off you go and play lawn bowls until you die. I mean, most people have do not have that as their ambition. So, you know, at 65 today, we could live for another 30 years after that. So if we've only got a working life of, of 45 years and then have to fund the next 30, that's suddenly a, a really different concept of, you know, is is 65 still the magic number? Do we want to continue to work past that in a part-time basis? Look, some people are still happy to hang up the boots, never work again. Others couldn't think of anything worse. They they want a purpose. They want to still feel useful. Even if, you know, playing with the grandkids on the, you know, part of the time is a goal and doing travel you know, do you still need to have a bit of bit more income to be able to fund that? So it's a very different conversation now about what does retirement look like and and how can you fund that? So I think the longevity question that's come into play, you know, especially from, you know, I suppose a physician's background, like, you know, we're making and helping people live longer. But then we've also got, if we become frail, 
in that longevity space, that can be very expensive as well. And look, Australia's health system is very different to, you know, the one in the States or the one in the UK. So, you know, how can you continue to fund yourself if you do get unwell? Is is there insurance? Is there investments? What what will you do? You know, do you have to just rely on family and hope for the best? So there's lots of things to consider. And sitting down with a professional may be the best thing for people who just go, I don't even know how to tackle this. I, you know, I've I've just coasted till now, done the DIY route because I didn't want to pay any fees, but all of a sudden it makes sense to invest with someone and go, I actually really need to understand what my options are going forward. Yeah. And how can people find you and um, find out the, about the work that you do? I am on LinkedIn as Amanda Casse. You can find me there. My work website is wealthplanningpartners.com.au. So probably more suited to the Australian audience, but, you know, general questions um, and please connect if you'd just love to say hi or hear more about my adventures. I've, I've had lots of lovely adventures um, around the world from Uganda to Malawi to India to <laughs> just um, traveling and making the most of, of my experiences. So, yeah, I'd love to share stories and, and hear from people. Yeah. And for all the audience out there, be sure to follow Amanda's social media, give her a like and follow. I'll check out her website. And with that, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it.